Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Just before we start, if you want to make sure you get every episode of Forgotten Australia as soon as it's released, make sure you're subscribed via whichever podcast platform you use. And if you're a fan of the show, you can help Forgotten Australia to keep going and to reach more listeners by leaving a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, and on with part four of The Woolworths Bombings. It's 2.30am on Tuesday the 13th of January 1981 and New South Wales Police Senior Constable Frank Buffoni has his service revolver trained on a scuba diver who's just tried to collect a $1 million ransom off Taronga Park Wharf. The suspect, codenamed Mr Bridge, clings to a pylon, afraid he'll be shot if he moves a muscle. The water police launch Campbell Cove surges across the harbour to the wharf. There, Mr Bridge thrashes and resists as police officers grab him and haul him aboard. Detective Sergeants John Openshaw and Norman Hazard from the CIB consorting squad now arrive on another police launch. These two senior task force members have been on the ransom follow and harbour stakeout for the past 18 hours. Now they get their first look at this Mr Bridge in his scuba getup that includes hood, twin air tanks and an uninflated orange buoyancy vest. Over one shoulder, the bloke has a yellow nylon rope, exactly like the one that's still securing the submerged Kookaburra ransom bag containing $1 million worth of Woolworths cash, gold and diamonds. As Mr Bridge is ferried across the harbour to the Water Police headquarters at Dawes Point, detectives Openshaw and Hazard and two police divers pull up this heavy ransom bag and the green airline's carry-all that's filled with rocks also attached to the yellow rope. The task force members do a quick check on several small vessels moored in the vicinity and scour the shoreline with the police launcher's powerful searchlights. They see no one and nothing of interest. With a larger search to be done by daylight, detectives Openshaw and Hazard head to the water police headquarters. Upstairs, they meet their suspect. 
He's still in his wetsuit, though no longer wearing the hood, mask, tanks and buoyancy vest. The guy's in his late 20s. Big dark eyes, curly brown hair and a full beard. The detectives introduce themselves and ask his name. He responds, Greg Newman. This isn't true. As the detectives will soon learn, Mr. Bridges' real name is Gregory Norman McHardy. And boy, does he have a tall tale to tell about how he wound up in Sydney Harbour reaching out for a $1 million ransom. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part four of the special Forgotten Australia series, The Woolworths Bombings. Gregory Norman McCarty was never to testify in court in this case. So what we know of his life comes from his official police records, a statement of support that his father offered on his behalf, and from his military file, which I recently had digitised by the National Archives of Australia. As for the part he played in the Woolworths bombings, we know what witnesses and experts testified. But most of what we know comes from what Greg claimed to police, or at least what they claimed he claimed, and the counterclaims his lawyer then made in his court defence. Gregory Norman McHardy was born in Queensland on the 8th of May 1952. The second of four children, he grew up in Rockhampton, where the McHardy name was well known and respected, not least because Greg's dad Norm was a terrific rugby league player in the local competitions. Greg went to Rockhampton State Schools where he had plenty of young female admirers. One of them would later recall, quote, Like most girls, I had a couple of harmless relationships at school, nothing serious, but there was one boyfriend who stood out, not so much at the time, but many years later. His name was Greg McHardy. I couldn't have been more than 10 or 12. All I remember was that he was popular with the girls who would titter and giggle as he passed. Then one day someone said he liked me and he was suddenly declared to be my boyfriend. The reality was we talked a few times, but that was about it. This girl? Carrie Ann Wright, better known as Carrie Ann Kennelly, with that recollection taken from her 2017 memoir, A Bold Life. After making little Carrie Ann's heartbeat faster in primary school, Greg McCarty went to North Rockhampton High. In Year 9, April 1967, he got into a bit of strife. He and a mate were busted driving a car they'd supposedly borrowed after discovering the owner had left the keys in it. Greg got a rap over the knuckles in the children's court. He finished school at the end of that year, aged 15, and worked odd jobs until leaving home two years later to be a jackaroo. After this sheep station experience, Greg was a jack of all trades, his jobs including driving and bartending in Queensland and the Northern Territory. In 1969, back in Rockhampton and staying with his folks, Greg briefly went in for a shirt with collar and tie gig when he worked as a trainee manager at one of the town's Woolworths stores. Like his dad, Greg was a handy footballer and in 1971-72 he played rugby league in Tully and Eyre. At this time, he was also found guilty of receiving stolen property and got a 12-month good behaviour bond. In Greg's version of events, it was a simple mix-up that had seen him stitched up. Not to worry, because the straight and narrow beckoned, complete with short back and sides. That's because Gregory Norman McCarty enlisted in the regular army on the 12th of September 1972. The army could offer a steady job and the satisfaction of service. 
Australia's commitment to Vietnam was also at an end, so signing up didn't put Greg at risk of dying in a losing war in Southeast Asia. He did his basic training at Gapuka and was on leave in mid-November 1972 when he met a girl from Sydney. They got on well, really well, and two months later she was pregnant. After marching out, Greg had been stationed at Ingleburn Army Base in southwestern Sydney. In mid-January, he was on a short leave and due back on the 20th. But Greg McCarty didn't return. He went AWOL. Exactly seven months later, on the 20th of August, he surrendered at Ingleburn and faced a court-martial. Greg entered a plea of guilty. Given a chance to explain himself, his statement began, quote, Well, it all started. I met this girl. He told the court she'd become pregnant and he was torn between his obligations to her and to the Australian Army. Greg had chosen the former. Yet it hadn't sat easily with him, especially after the girl up and left. Quote, My conscience got the better of me after a while. You get nervous looking over your shoulder all the time, so I decided to come back and square things. While Greg described his desertion as born of noble, if misguided motives, police files later recorded that during his seven months as a fugitive, he'd worked for horse trainers in Melbourne and Adelaide before returning to Queensland to pull beers in a pub. This was hardly the picture of a devoted bloke doing his duty to his pregnant girlfriend. Yet Greg had come back of his own volition. In any case, he was court-martialed, sentenced to 40 days detention, and then booted out of the army. Not that he'd ever been soldier material. The court-martial files psychological report section observed, quote, Soldiers AWOL is a continuation of a pattern of job instability and poor attitude to authority evident long before enlistment. Over the next few years, Greg worked in hotels in Brisbane and in Sydney. His jobs in the latter, he'd say, included the bourbon and beefsteak in King's Cross and the Dumbarton Castle Inn on Kent Street in the city. Around 1976, Greg went back north and took out a bookmaker's licence in Rockhampton. The following year, he married a woman named Kay and the couple soon had a baby daughter. They opened a restaurant in Rockhampton, but the relationship was rocky and after 18 months, they separated. Greg then went to Cairns and to Darwin, but he came back to Rockhampton when Kay got seriously sick. Greg looked after her and their daughter. Trying in love and business again, they sold the restaurant and, with Kay's mum's help, took out a lease on the Causeway Hotel in Townsville. Yet Greg and his mother-in-law didn't see eye to eye, and their falling out contributed not only to the end of the business, but also to the end of Greg and Kay's marriage. Greg left again and went to Brisbane, where, in his telling of it, around the start of 1980, he established a company that was going to sell video equipment to businesses. So it was he came to Sydney to see if his old mate and Dumbarton Castle Inn boss, Bob Evans, was interested in investing. Bob wasn't. So Greg travelled to Melbourne to learn more about the video business and to see if he could find other investors. While there, he stayed with a mate named Chris Lorenzo in Paran. Next, Greg was back in Sydney for a meeting with 20th Century Fox about his video ideas. Then he returned to Townsville to finalise the hotel lease. Greg's account of himself, at least as later offered by his defence lawyer, cast him as a hard-working young entrepreneur. 
Queensland police had a quite different take though, especially as the last time he'd been in their state, he'd been arrested for receiving stolen goods. According to New South Wales Woolworths Bombing Task Force boss, Detective Sergeant John Anderson's later account in the 1985 April edition of Australian Police magazine, Greg McCarty had been nabbed not only with $12,000 in stolen opals, but also with an unlicensed pistol. Not quite the assets and equipment you'd expect from a young video entrepreneur. John Anderson would write, quote, The offender was well known in the nightlife on the Gold Coast, and those close to him were of the opinion that he wanted to make a million before he made his first hundred. Greg McCarty also wanted to stay free, so he failed to appear in court on those charges on the 16th of September 1980. Soon after, he said goodbye to his girlfriend Karen and headed south in a land cruiser that he'd borrowed from a mate named Terry Chard. Just a side note here, and there's going to be a few more of these, Terry Chard had, in 1976, been charged, along with three other people, in a bust over the importation of $250,000 worth of heroin from Manila. By the start of October, Greg had turned up in the small seaside town of Huskisson on the New South Wales south coast. There, he stayed in a holiday house owned by Bob Evans. Another side note, Bob Evans was, according to claims made earlier in 1980 at the New South Wales Royal Commission into Drug Trafficking, much more than a publican, allegedly involved in heroin importation from Manila in cahoots with Nettie Smith and other crooks. For the record, Bob Evans had denied these allegations and was not charged with such offences. In Huskisson, Greg McHardy met a local knockabout fella named John Horobin, who had a business diving for the scallops that could then be found in Jarvis Bay. Horry, as he's nicknamed, told me recently that Greg struck him as a pretty quiet sort of young fella, and he gave him a part-time job cleaning scallops. So, at the start of December 1980, Greg McHardy was tucked away on the sleepy New South Wales south coast. He had a roof over his head and a job that paid a bit of cash that'd cover beers and pot when he partied with local girls. Greg was hardly on Interpol's most wanted list for his outstanding Queensland warrant. He'd likely be fine if he kept his head down. Instead, his head popped up out of the water off Taronga Park at 2.27am on Tuesday the 13th of January 1981. And that made Greg McHardy minor crook with some interesting connections, the main character in a potentially deadly $1 million crime caper that sounded like something out of Hollywood. At the Water Police headquarters, detectives John Openshaw and Norman Hazard told Greg, still known to them as Greg Newman, that they were going to take him to the CIB where he'd be interviewed about the Woolworths extortion. They offered him the chance to get out of the wetsuit and put on a blue dust coat. At the CIB, in the consorting squad office, detectives Openshaw and Hazard examined the ransom bag and the scuba suit and diving equipment. At around 5am, they began their interview with the suspect. Another side note, everything we're about to hear now comes from the later testimony of those two detectives and Task Force boss Detective Sergeant John Anderson, who was present for some of the interrogation. Their testimony was not corroborated independently or via a record of interview signed by the suspect. Such evidence was often maligned throughout the 20th century in Australia as verbaling. That was, 
putting words into the mouths of suspects, knowing juries who trusted police would accept them as true and likely convict. Verbaling didn't always, or even usually, take the form of a supposed confession. Often they were statements that made the accused look guilty, even as they were protesting their innocence. Greg McHardy's defence was to later claim he was verbaled by these detectives, that he hadn't been properly cautioned, and that his request for a solicitor to be present during questioning had been denied. As we'll hear, many of the details Greg's defence offered in support of these verbaling claims made them seem rather dubious. Whether or not Greg McCarty was verbaled, what is true is that, following changes to the law, the detectives' accounts of these interrogations would today be admissible only if independently corroborated and or electronically recorded. Another side note. While there's nothing to suggest any improper conduct by Detective Norman Hazard and Detective John Anderson, the integrity of lead interviewer and prosecution witness Detective John Openshaw can be justifiably called into question. That's because he was later to be kicked out of the force for his, quote, highly discreditable association with Nettie Smith that dated back to at least 1983 for his, quote, grossly improper act in giving a heroin dealer a heads up about his impending arrest and for lying about these actions to internal security unit officers. During the tribunal hearing that saw John Openshaw kicked out of the force in 1986, the judge said he believed he'd been evasive and untruthful in his evidence. And all of that was before 1992, when now private citizen John Openshaw was jailed for his part in a brothel shakedown racket carried out with a serving police officer. So, back to the morning of the 13th of January, 1981. In the police version of the interview, Detective Openshaw cautioned Greg that he didn't have to say anything, but that if he did, it could be used in evidence. Detective Openshaw also offered, quote, it is my intention to have our conversation recorded in the form of a record of interview. At the completion of the record of interview, you will be given the opportunity of reading each page and you may sign it if you wish. Do you understand? Greg McCarty allegedly replied, quote, Look, I'm not trying to be smart, but I don't want to sign anything and I don't want anything typed down. I'm in enough trouble as it is. Of course, that makes you wonder in the police version of events, why Greg didn't ask for a solicitor. Detective Openshaw asked Greg if he agreed that he'd been caught in the harbour trying to retrieve a bag. Greg replied, Yes, I could hardly deny it. Detective Openshaw, Do you know what was in that bag? Greg, I was told it was money, gold and diamonds. Detective Openshaw asked if he knew it was the Woolworths' ransom. Greg said he did. Detective Openshaw asked, Would you tell me what part you played in this extortion attempt? Greg replied, I was approached. I was offered the job to do the diving and retrieve the bag. Who offered you this job? Greg, I would rather not say. What he would say was that a man had offered him $100,000. Quote, A couple of months ago in Queensland, he told me there was a job going down and to keep in touch, and he gave me a Sydney telephone number. Greg said he'd thrown that number away, but remembered that it had started with 233. All had been quiet until last week when Greg had seen this man at Twain's Disco in Surfer's Paradise. The bloke had said Greg would need to be in Sydney by Friday and offered to drive him. Greg said he'd make his own way, and so he hitchhiked. 
Detective Openshaw asked Greg if he owned the scuba gear he'd been caught with. Greg said he did. When he got to Sydney, Greg said he'd called the number and met the man in Chinatown. He was told there'd been a change of plan and the job would now be going down on Monday. Greg claimed he'd slept that night in Hyde Park with his scuba gear. Then, on Saturday, he and the mastermind had gone to Taronga Park and stashed the wetsuit, mask, hood, regulators, flippers and tanks in the bush. Detective Openshaw asked Greg about the hood, which bore the initials PDW. What did PDW stand for? Greg said he didn't know. See, he'd bought the gear secondhand. That was believable enough, but what wasn't was that this Greg Newman had hitchhiked 1,000 kilometres carrying two heavy tanks and the rest of the diving equipment. Nor was it credible that he'd slept with all this vital gear in Hyde Park on a Friday night when Sydney was at its wildest. Even the suspect could see it didn't make sense and now, according to the police version, Greg cracked under the weight of his own BS, saying, quote, It's not a very good story I'm telling you, is it? Jesus, I'm in trouble. I may as well tell you my right name, as you will probably find out anyway. It's Gregory Norman McCarty. Greg said he lived in Rockhampton. Greg then said, look, I had nothing to do with the bombings. Detective Openshaw wanted to know who'd hired him to do the job. Greg said the bloke's name was Benny. Quote, he told me what the setup was and all I had to do was pick up the money. Benny had dropped him at Taronga Park yesterday afternoon around five o'clock. Greg had stayed in the bush until it got dark and then a few hours later went into the water. He hadn't seen anyone on the wharf and he claimed that he'd looked at it from three different angles. Quote, I swam along the shoreline to the wharf. I went down to the pylon where I was told the bag was supposed to be, but it wasn't there. I came up and I found it about 10 feet from the surface. I couldn't understand why it was there, so I surfaced and I saw that it was still tied to the wharf, and that is when I got grabbed. Another side note here. In his later Australian Police magazine account, Detective Sergeant John Anderson would write that Detective Senior Constable Frank Kamer, who'd acted as Woolworths' courier, had thwarted the extortioner's pickup plan because he, quote, did not release the tied section from the pylon as was intended by the offenders. Yet Frank Kamer would testify that over the CB radio, he'd only been instructed to tie the ransom bag and radio to the yellow rope and drop it into the water off the wharf. Frank Kamel didn't say he'd been instructed to untie the rope. Yet the airline bag filled with rocks appeared to be there as an anchor that would ensure the ransom sank directly to the bottom where it could be easily retrieved without Greg McCarty having to surface. If this is how it happened, whoever had been on the CB giving Frank Kamer instructions had stuffed up to the tune of $1 million. His interrogation continuing, Greg said he was supposed to retrieve the bag, return to the bush and hide where he'd be picked up later in the day by Benny. How had Greg intended to carry the weight of the bag? Quote, I was going to inflate my buoyancy jacket and clip it to the bag, drop my weights and adjust the buoyancy until I got my medium and swim with it. Greg told Detective Openshaw he'd estimated the bag weighed 50 pounds. In reality, when filled with water and the ransom, it weighed 132 pounds. What Detective Openshaw wanted to know, did he have the yellow rope for? Quote, I was going to drag the bag if I had to. Where had he gotten the rope? He said, from Benny. 
Detective Openshaw told him it was exactly the same style of rope as had been tied to the wharf. Greg said, quote, Don't tell me he is that stupid. He has used the same piece of rope. Of course, this frustration was meant to underline that Greg had not been involved in tying the rope to the pylon because he was only the courier. Now Detective Openshaw wanted to know what Greg had been going to do after he handed off the ransom and collected his payment. That bit was simple. He'd take his $100,000 and head back to Queensland. Detective Openshaw asked what Benny's surname was. Greg said he didn't know, but he could offer a detailed description. He was 37 to 40 years old, 5 foot 9, olive skin, dark hair, medium length, not greasy. He had a solid build and a barrel chest, like a weightlifter. Benny was always well-dressed. He liked gold jewellery. And he drove a mustard-coloured 1979 model Ford Falcon sedan. Greg thought that Benny was from Sicily or maybe Yugoslavia. Greg said he'd met Benny a few years back when he was working at the Bourbon and Beefsteak in King's Cross. Benny was always in there, and you'd also often find him having breakfast at the Aristocrat at around 5 in the morning after a big night. This Benny fella, Greg said, was a well-known figure in King's Cross. The detectives took a break to confer with Task Force boss John Anderson. When they returned, Detective Openshaw said to Greg, quote, I noticed during our interview that you used the expression, the job is going down. What did you mean by that expression? Greg replied, the job was going to be done that night. Detective Openshaw then played Greg one of the tapes from the previous Friday. That had been the day when Mr Dunmore had tried to go past the 3pm deadline that Woolworths point man John Hendry had set for the ransom to be collected. In this call, the extortionist had said in frustration, quote, I told you it was going to go down today. Going to go down. Greg agreed that the phrase had been used on the tape and that he'd heard it clearly. But he said the voice wasn't his and nor was it Benny's. Detective Openshaw then showed Greg the $1 million demand letter. Asked if he had anything to say, Greg replied, quote, Look, I had nothing to do with any letters, bombings or telephone calls. All I did was the diving job. Detective Sergeant John Anderson now said to Greg, quote, You understand we are apprehensive about further explosions at Woolworths. A person who has rung Woolworths has indicated that if the courier is arrested, four remote-controlled bombs will be detonated at four of Woolworths stores at midday today. To this, Greg replied, There won't be any more explosions. Detective Anderson asked, How can you say that? Of course, if Greg was just the courier, he wouldn't have any such knowledge. Greg didn't reply, so Detective Anderson repeated the question. Greg now said, I just don't think they'll do it, that's all. Detective Anderson asked, Who do you mean by they? Greg, I mean Benny. I know he's dangerous, that's what I'm worried about, but I don't think he will do anything else against Woolworths. Detective Openshaw now asked Greg if he was prepared to go with them to Taronga Park and show where he'd entered the water and hid the equipment. At 8am, they did this. Greg pointed out where Benny had dropped him on Middlehead Road and the area of rock on a beach at the bottom of Ashton Park where he said he'd gone into the harbour. He also pointed out bushes where he claimed he'd left his t-shirt, shorts and shoes. The clothes weren't there because he said someone must have taken them. 
About an hour later, Greg, still barefoot and wearing his blue dust coat, was at the central court of Petty Sessions. He was charged with attempting to steal $500,000 in cash, 22 diamonds and 500 ounces of gold from Woolworths and charged with conspiring to extort money with menaces. With the police prosecutor outlining the seriousness of the case, including his suspected involvement in bombing three Woolworths stores with co-conspirators, Greg was denied bail and remanded in custody until the 27th of January. In making this ruling, the magistrate noted that Greg, already wanted in Queensland, was a serious flight risk. As it turned out, that was an understatement. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. At 9am this Tuesday morning, the 13th of January, 1981, Woolworths faced a huge decision. Mr. Bridge, aka Gregory Norman McHardy, was now cooling his heels in his cell at Central Police Station. Mr. Dunmore had threatened that this very outcome would result in four remote control bombs detonating at 12 noon in four different Woolworths stores. That was three hours away. The company had 256 outlets across the state. They couldn't all be searched. To open or not to open? That was the question. To believe Greg McHardy or to risk disaster? Woolworths went ahead and opened its doors. Then, with staff and customers inside for just two hours, the company did an about-face. At 11 o'clock, Woolworths and the police called an urgent press conference to announce they'd received further bomb threats. More than 1,000 police were then involved in a dramatic statewide operation. Here's how the Sydney Morning Herald was to report it the following day, quote, When police heard about the threats of four bombs in the department stores, they and Woolworths executive decided not to take any chances. At 11am, units of uniformed and plainclothes police moved in to evacuate staff and shoppers from the chain of 256 Woolworths stores in the state. The Town Hall and Liverpool stores were subjected to extra tight security, with cordons set up and people warned to stay away. Given Woolworths and the police had known of this threat for 24 hours, Why didn't they simply delay opening until after the detonation deadline had passed? Especially as 1,000 police were pulled off other duties and tens of thousands of staff and shoppers were inconvenienced by turning up only to be turned out onto the streets in the middle of the day. I know this is pretty cynical, but my guess is that two hours trading across 256 stores was still worth a lot of money and that opening as usual would stop Woolies from looking weak while stopping workers from justifiably taking off the first half of the day at the company's expense. High noon came and went with no bomb blasts. But news of the arrest at Taronga Park and this blaze of publicity about bomb threats inspired the cranks and the copycats. Even as staff and customers returned to stores, a new wave of specific bomb threats came in and many Woolworths outlets were cleared again. This included the Town Hall store, 
throwing central Sydney into traffic chaos one more time. In the three weeks after the Christmas Eve bombing, Woolworth stores in New South Wales had received 206 bomb threats, with another 100 targeting outlets in other states. And there had been more than 300 bomb hoaxes made against other businesses across New South Wales. That Tuesday morning and afternoon, as Woolworth staff and shoppers shuffled around on footpaths waiting for the all-clear, Operation Alpha was splashed all over Sydney's tabloid newspapers. As dramatic as the arrest had been, it wasn't presented as a victory for the police. The Sun's front page had a photo of Greg McHardy hiding his face in the back of a car flanked by stern-faced detectives. The top headline? Mastermind escapes police trap. Below, another headline. Woolley's bombing's arrest, diver held at Zoo Wharf. The Daily Mirror ran with the front page Woolley's bomb arrest and a photo of detectives in a huddle around a police launch at Taronga Park Wharf. Its inside two-page spread included headlines Top Man Evades Trap and Police Fear Reprisals from Mr Dunmore. That day, the New South Wales Opposition Shadow Attorney General, Mr John Dowd, blasted Operation Alpha as Amateur Hour. This armchair detective, who'd soon be dressed down by his opposition leader, said that police should have tracked the money back to the mastermind. Quote, Surely they didn't think the man behind the extortion would turn up to collect the bag. If they intended to grab the person who came for the money, why did they bother to put the money, diamonds and gold bars in the bag at all? The whole operation appears to be rather amateurish. I think the police should explain just what they were hoping to achieve. Mr Dowd said he feared that the police's actions meant the bomber might really now retaliate against Woolworths. Fronting a terse 12-minute press conference at the CIB, New South Wales Police's number two man, Deputy Superintendent Jeff Hammond, gave brief and defensive answers, and he also cut off journalists trying to ask follow-up questions. As to whether his task force had moved too quickly at Taronga, he said, quote, Of course, you like to score an outright win, but the action of the police in their arrest yesterday was on their own initiative, and I support what they did. You have to take what you have in hand. What would you do if a man popped up out of the water like that? He continued, It was dark, there was no way to follow the man and police decided that it was better to arrest him than let the money go. We are a lot more confident than we were a few days ago of catching the man responsible for these acts. Responding to the Shadow Attorney General's criticisms, he said, quote, Police do not reply to any allegations from politicians. He did, however, note that a tracking device, as suggested by Mr Dowd, would not have worked in the water. Superintendent Hammond didn't say, however, whether one had been placed in the bag, and there'd be no later mention of such a precaution. What he did say was how disgusted he was with the bomb hoaxes. Superintendent Hammond said police were dealing with 40 or more a day in the Sydney metropolitan area alone. Quote, Everyone is on edge, and it is most disturbing. What was most sensational about the press conference, however, was the naming and description of Benny. Benny became an instant celebrity. The next day, the sun ran the front page cry of Get Benny in a big white-on-black headline. A subhead reminded readers there was a $250,000 reward for information leading to the conviction of the extortionist bomber. The Sun also claimed to have learned, 
as its other headlines summarised, four in Woolies Bomb Gang. These four crims were said to be experts in terrorism and extortion. The article further claimed that Mr Dunmore, aka Benny, had made a phone call to Woolworths and the police after Greg McCarty's arrest and there was now a quote, delicate situation. There'd already been a supposed sighting of Benny in his Ford Falcon outside the Woolworths store at Rockdale. Then there was speculation he'd already fled overseas and left his gang high and dry. The Daily Telegraph went with a more sedate front page, quote, Search goes on for Mad Woolies Bomber. But its article was still pretty sensationalist, beginning, Police fear that Mad Woolworths Bomber Mr Dunmore will strike again after the arrest of a man at Taronga Park Wharf early yesterday. Inside, the newspaper reported on what its headline called Spot the Bomber is New Quarter Million Dollar Rage. The accompanying article began, quote, Police checked dozens of possible leads yesterday following publication of the description of Benny, the Woolworths bombing mastermind. Aware the company has offered a $250,000 reward for the capture of the bomber, Benny spotting has become a public rage. The Daily Mirror outdid both papers with the front page screamer, Get the Bomber! Benny the Brain is new public enemy number one. The accompanying article, written by veteran crime reporter Bill Jenkins, was high-octane stuff. Quote, From what is known of him, detectives believe he will be furious over his thwarted bid to collect $1 million ransom yesterday. And they fear the frustrated maniac may launch a new campaign of bombing terror. Today, every available detective was working on every available lead in an all-out effort to nail Benny. Their hopes have been raised by a steady stream of information from the public following the release of the bomber's description yesterday, and they believe the net is tightening around the man responsible for the most amazing extortion plot Australia has seen. Inside, Bill Jenkins reported police were hunting the tightly knit gang that they dubbed the Benny Bunch. The following day, Bill provided an update saying hundreds of extra police were blanketing Woolworths stores, ready for, quote, any bomb strike by Benny the Brain. His article continued, Detectives fear that Benny, who they know has a liking for high drama, will choose late-night shopping to take his revenge for Tuesday's ransom pickup arrest. One senior detective, not named by Bill Jenkins, was quoted as saying, he could be mad enough to let a bomb go in the middle of a store full of people. While the police weren't in quite the frenzy the tabloids described, they were on the lookout for Benny, with officers checking his known haunts, the bourbon and beefsteak and the aristocrat, and making inquiries with the goodly denizens of King's Cross. Detective Sergeant John Anderson would later say that some 50 officers from the vice and consorting squads were involved in these efforts. Meanwhile, off the front pages, detectives Openshaw and Hazard interviewed two witnesses who, on the night of Monday the 12th, had been indulging their odd hobby of collecting old bottles on the beach at Ashton Park. These blokes had, between 8pm and 9.15, seen a man in full wetsuit, including diving hood, sitting on rocks by the shore. He'd been adjusting his tanks and they'd been letting out whooshes of compressed air. Neither of these witnesses had seen the man's face well enough to identify him, but they were both certain that he'd had with him an orange underwater propulsion unit. 
a submersible scooter like this made sense because it would have made moving the heavy ransom bag any sort of distance far easier than a rope and a buoyancy vest. Yet Greg McCarty hadn't been caught with such a propulsion unit. Though Detective Openshaw didn't later disclose his source, he'd learned that Greg McCarty had been in Melbourne around September of 1980. So a detective was sent south to investigate his movements. This man found that Greg had stayed with a friend named Chris Lorenzo in a flat in Paran. Searching this place, the detective discovered a piece of paper that was partially typed and partially handwritten. It was headed The Greg File, and its notations made reference to $1 million. The detective brought this piece of paper back to Sydney, where it was added to the pile of circumstantial evidence that Greg McHardy had been far more than just Benny's courier. While the newspapers in the first few days after Greg McHardy's arrest posited Benny as a menace who was ready to strike back, Woolworths was again ready to go on a PR offensive. The company's chairman, Eric McClintock, who'd just been knighted in the New Year's honours for his service to exports and industry, called a press conference in which he said, quote, For the past month, we have been through a harrowing experience, but as far as we are concerned, it is over, and we will be getting back to normal. Recasting the arrest as a major victory on the way to winning the war, Sir Eric said, We set up a partnership with the police, and they now feel they have had the break they wanted, the trail has been laid. The Sydney Morning Herald on the 17th of January towed this line with a headline that read, Bombing is over, Woolworths. The subhead read, quote, The nightmarish voice at the end of the line goes silent. The Sydney Morning Herald's article included a sidebar headlined, Four men at the battlefront. The three heroes of the piece had photos to go with their mini profiles. John Hendry, Director of Corporate Relations, had, quote, played a key role in the store's attitude towards the extortion demands and its cooperation with the police. Task Force boss, Detective Sergeant John Anderson, quote, a tough, dedicated policeman who was acting head of the CIB consorting squad, had often worked the case 24 hours a day. Sir Eric, quote, spoke to Mr Dunmore almost every day for about three weeks. Now he believes the crisis is over and the store can get on with business. The fourth figure, Mr Dunmore, villain of the piece, didn't of course have a photo to go with his profile. But the article said he was now thought to be in hiding. Maintaining the ruse that Mr Dunmore had actually spoken with Sir Eric rather than John Hendry makes me think the police weren't 100% confident that it was over and that they wanted this betrayal kept secret in case there was further communication. The article's triumphal tone and language depicted Mr Dunmore as a spent force. Quote, While he was active, his bombs and demands terrorised thousands of shoppers, disrupted services to the public and tied up a large number of police. This made Mr Dunmore seem like ancient history, rather than a man whose threats had caused 1,000 police to be deployed statewide just three days ago. By accident or by design, this article might goad Mr Dunmore into making some kind of move. Same went with Sir Eric's defiant quote, As of now, we are getting back to normal and to hell with bombers. As had been the case right after the town hall bombing, the tabloid papers were also keen to portray the fighting spirit of the Woolworths staff. The Daily Mirror ran a big article headlined, 
The Wonders of Woolies, in which Mavis Marsh, a company employee for 25 years, said, Give it away, Benny. We'll stick together and beat you. Mavis was backed, the article said, by the 230 staff who worked at the town hall store. The paper described them, quote, Affectionately known as the Woolies Wonders, the women formed a united front against a man whose tactics could have easily shattered their lives. But the opposite has happened. Absenteeism has dropped and no one has resigned since the terror campaign began last month. Jenny Code, a younger staff member, told the paper, quote, I'm too young to have lived through a war, but I think the staff have formed a closeness that happened during the Second World War. Everyone feels closer and we are all talking to each other. For what the bomber is putting us through, he should be blown up. Such PR was good for Woolies. And Benny was a boon for tabloid headline writers. Meanwhile, skerricks of evidence, along with contradictory statements from Greg McHardy, made it clear to the investigating police that he'd been more than just a courier for hire. But the biggest breakthrough came via the efforts of Detective Sergeant Colin Holden, who'd been tasked with following up on the diving equipment that Greg had been caught wearing. In addition to the initials PDW on the diving hood, the two air tanks had distinguishing features. For starters, they'd been painted black, their original blue showing through now in several places. The tank serial numbers were also visible. With this to go on, Detective Sergeant Holden was making inquiries at Sydney's dive shops. He got what he was looking for at Pro Diving Services in Coogee. This shop was owned by a man named Rick Poole, who had another dive business called the Sea Life Lodge and Sea Life Shop down at Huskisson on the New South Wales south coast. Rick Poole's records confirmed that the serial numbers on the tanks used by Greg McHardy matched those of two tanks that had been stolen from the Huskisson shop a few months back. To find out more, Detective Sergeant Holden drove down to Huskisson to interview the Sea Life Shop's manager, Philip Wells. Philip Wells explained, as he had to Nowra Police at the time, that on the morning of the 15th of October 1980, he'd found the business had been broken into. A substantial amount of diving gear had been stolen, including those two tanks. Philip's own personal equipment had also been in the store and much of it had been taken too. This included his diving hood, which was marked with his initials P.D.W. Philip David Wells. With this connection, police were able to establish that Greg McHardy had been living in Huskisson since around mid-October. His claim to have come down from Queensland last week at Benny's bidding was a lie. They found that Greg had been working part-time cleaning scallops for John Horobin and living at a holiday house owned by his old boss and suspected organised crime figure Bob Evans. That was until about the third week of December when Bob announced that he needed his place back for the Christmas season, so Greg had started lobbying at another house in Huskisson. This one was on Currumbeen Street, right behind the Sea Life Lodge. This cottage was co-owned by Rick Poole with Larry Danielson, who'd recently come south to Huskisson from Sydney. Larry had for a few months worked at the Sea Life Lodge for Rick, but he'd quickly become known in the area as an entertaining singer-songwriter who could draw a crowd whenever he played the local clubs. The Sydney Police's investigation now shifted to this little town's cast of colourful characters. 
Among them, detectives felt they might find Benny, or at least a strong lead to him. So they started interviews with people who knew Greg McHardy. What they didn't know, what only Greg and Mr Dunmore knew, was this. Benny, with his weightlifter's physique, nice clothes, gold jewellery and flashy new car, didn't exist. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to the fourth part of the special Forgotten Australia series, The Woolworths Bombings. The next instalment's going to be out very soon, so make sure you're subscribed to get it as soon as it's released. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.